Welcome again. We're here at our study of the Epistle to the Philippians, and we're in chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 14 and end with verse 18, which is just in the middle of uh, a section, so we're not covering the whole thing at once, but hopefully you can listen to the previous recordings and those after this one uh, to, to get the whole uh, paragraph put together. So, glad you're here with us, and let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we are grateful to you that you have drawn us to yourself. You have given us the gift of faith. You have adopted us as your children. And Lord, we're grateful for your ever-presence with us through your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit. We bless you also for your word that lives and abides forever. We know, O Lord, that your word is forever settled in heaven. And even though there would be those who would like to Uh, bring demise upon your word and try to tell others that your word is not inspired and not something that is historically correct. We know, Father, that it is. And we have seen the evidence of it and we know this for assurance. And so we come to your word looking, Father, for you to lead us by your spirit to guide us and to implant your word into our hearts and minds so that we might live it out for your glory and for your honor. So, Lord, we thank you that you give us this time together, and we pray that you would be glorified in what we do, and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, we're going to begin by reading. I'm reading uh, out of the New American Standard Bible. This is the Bible that I normally use, and you know that each week we kind of go around to a different uh, uh, version just to see how others are uh, interpreting the, the Greek here. I was interested in the New American Standard Bible 2020. I don't have it yet in my possession, though I could, and I will (laughs) right away, because it is on the Accordance uh, Bible software. And uh, my first uh, look at the New American Standard Bible 2020 is that I'm not all that impressed with it, but I uh, I don't know for sure. So maybe next week we'll read from that and see how it's any different. But now we're reading from the New American Standard 1995, and we're reading the first chapter of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Messiah Yeshua, to all the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Messiah Yeshua. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Messiah Yeshua. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, You all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Messiah. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Yeshua Messiah, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Messiah has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Messiah even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, 
Messiah will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Messiah, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Messiah Yeshua through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Messiah's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Well, once again, this is uh, really some kind of a chapter, isn't it? It uh, packs so much into a small space. And we're starting with verse 14. We are breaking into the context because he said earlier that um, he had had the, the, the uh, success in not only uh, giving the gospel to the Praetorian Guard, but also to other prisoners. And so he says in verse 14, And that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So having expressed the manner in which the Lord had enabled him to be a witness for Yeshua and the gospel, not only to those who guarded him in prison, but also to other prisoners as well, Paul now rejoices in the fact that even in his imprisonment, many of the believers were emboldened to be active witnesses for Yeshua as well. And I think this is kind of the sum of this paragraph. It is, it is the, the whole idea that we must not only live out the gospel, we must speak the gospel to others. It is important, first of all, as we consider this verse, to address the different approaches that different English Bibles have taken in their respective translations. Now, I would love to spend more time in the Greek, but I know that... Uh, that isn't all that profitable for many of you, but I hope that um, when I do do a little bit of a foray into the Greek, that it uh, it will be understandable. So, if you consult various English Bibles, you'll see that they have uh, translated this verse differently. The issue is how the Greek is to be understood, and particularly to what the phrase "in the Lord" should be attached. So. When we, when we read this verse, it says, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord. Well, you say, there isn't any problem there, trusting in the Lord. Isn't that the way it should be? Well, there are those who think it should be uh, translated differently. And there are two options. Trusting in the Lord or brethren of the Lord. So the question is, in the, where should in the Lord be? Relying simply upon the word order of the Greek. Because the way the Greek actually reads is, the brethren in the Lord. Some translations have opted for brethren in the Lord, and that would be the American Standard Bible, the Complete Jewish Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Contemporary English Bible, the Revised English Bible. Uh, others, however, connect in the Lord with the verb patho, which immediately follows the phrase, uh, thus yielding the translation, trusting in the Lord. And that's how the NESB does it, the ESV. The NIV does it with a slightly different uh, way of doing things. The uh, Christian English uh, Bible and the Net Bible. And this has the support of the Greek grammar as well as Paul's word pattern in this immediate context. So I think the NESB and the NIV, ESV and so forth are correct. For the Greek would normally expect an article, the word the, before in the Lord, in the Lord, uh, though some consider it possible that the grammar would support the meaning the brothers who are in the Lord, even though the second article is not written. However, there are at least two factors that give greater weight 
that Paul intended his words to be taken to mean to trust in the Lord. First is that the common use of the title the brethren in the apostolic scriptures is that it is automatically understood to be believers, both men and women. And that, this may be something we need to just remind ourselves that the masculine word brethren in the apostolic scriptures refers to people all, you know, male and female. Now, some of the translations have gone to translating it that way, um, but that's not, I think it's better to understand brethren to mean a brotherhood or a fellowship, and uh, oftentimes that's what it means. So it means both men and women. There, there would be no need then to add a modifier who trust in the Lord in order to describe believers, because believers are understood. The brothers, the brethren, or the assembly is understood to be believers. It didn't. There would be no need to add in the Lord. Second is the fact that in our verse Paul places all modifiers of a clause in first position. Thus, in the clause, in the Lord trusting, literally in the Lord trusting, the modifier in the Lord is first in the clause and thus connects with the verb trusting. So, while there may be some ambiguity here, I think the weight of evidence surely supports Paul's meaning to be that the majority of the believers who were aware of Paul's imprisonment were having their faith strengthened rather than weakened. The majority were trusting the Lord, not only for their own situation, but also for Paul's. One could imagine that there were those who professed faith in Yeshua who, having heard of Paul's imprisonment, were concerned that their association with Paul might diminish their own safety and result in persecution coming their way. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, here's a major leader, a major voice, a major apostle in the whole Yeshua movement that started there after after Shavuot and so forth and so on, and, and before, obviously. But, I mean, uh, th- Paul was known as one of the primary voices for Yeshua. Now he's imprisoned, awaiting a, uh, a trial as to whether he will be executed or not. Do you suppose, then, that there would have been those who thought, wow, I don't know if I want to be associated with him or not. If people find out I'm a follower of Paul and his message, then am I vulnerable to the same kind of persecution? But this is no doubt why Paul refers to most of the brethren were demonstrating even stronger courage to live out their faith and be active in proclaiming the gospel and Yeshua to others as well. As F.F. Bruce notes, when Paul says that this is true of most of the brothers, he does not mean that there was a minority that refused to see this opportunity for evangelization. He means that so many did so that their action characterized the Roman church as a whole. Nothing could have given Paul greater delight. But you know, but you would think that even though most of them were very much online supporting Paul and praying for Paul and even taking things to him because as we mentioned last week in the prisons in the first century uh, there in the in the east in the ancient east uh, there was nothing that would be given to the prisoners to sustain them. They weren't fed. They didn't get water. That had to be brought by friends and family. And so you can imagine then that those who came and, and assisted him like Epaphroditus, and of course those from others from Philippi, um, and even from the region of Rome and so forth. Uh, they were very much in tune with Paul. But it's clear in our context that there were those who were uh, not so keen as those who were helping Paul. He goes on to say, Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. It seems clear that Paul has in mind the believers in Rome, where he is currently imprisoned, as well as in Philippi, for the believers in Rome undoubtedly were also seeking to aid Paul during his incarceration. Here we see the true response of genuine faith. For though one could imagine that seeing a prominent leader such as Paul being persecuted for his own faith in Yeshua, others might seek to hide their faith to avoid being persecuted, The believers both in Rome and in Philippi, not all of them, but maybe the majority, were emboldened to be even more diligent in sharing their faith 
and the truth about Yeshua. This is, in fact, the true essence of saving faith. For when believers recognize that being public about their faith in Yeshua may bring increased persecution, their faith is strengthened by the work of the Ruach, so that the message of the gospel flourishes. You know, as I was working through this uh, this passage, I, I just thought again, how are we doing? I mean, let's make this personal. We're not under persecution at this point. We can we have every freedom to share the gospel. And how are we doing with that? Well, we know that there are people who would look down upon us. Uh, I'm sure you've all experienced this, as I have and others, that when you begin to talk to somebody and try to open the conversation with regard to their uh, position towards God and towards uh, faith and, and uh, salvation and Yeshua and so forth, um, they look at you like you're crazy. And they let you know right off the bat, I want nothing to do with that religious nonsense. Well, okay. But that doesn't mean we can't continue if we have the opportunity to talk more with them. And it shouldn't in any way cause us to be uh, shy about sharing the gospel with anyone and everyone. That's what we are to do. And so you can imagine that in this situation where there was clear, strong persecution against Paul and apparently against other believers, that there might have been those who thought, you know, I don't know if I really want to be part of this or not. But here's the key. If God has actually done something in your heart and your life, you are not going to be able to turn from it. He will lovingly but carefully discipline those who need discipline and bring those who are his to himself in truth. But it is our responsibility to put ourselves forward. It's our responsibility to be living out the faith that we have. And since God uses the giving of the gospel as the very means by which he brings those who are his to himself, we are privileged to partner with the Ruach HaKodesh to be the bearers of the good news of the gospel about Yeshua. And I know in our modern world it's not considered to be fashionable, it's not considered to be something, you know, let's let everybody be who they are and you know, whatever. No, the gospel is the, is the way. It is the truth, because it's talking about the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I think if I think these verses that we're looking at tonight really encourage us, and and command us, when we make application of these verses, to be fervent in our giving of the gospel. So the very fact that. Uh, the true essence of saving faith is when believers recognize that being public about their faith in Yeshua may bring increased persecution. It doesn't in any way stop them from it if indeed they are intent on obeying God. This obvious fact is emphasized by Paul's word, trusting in the Lord. Our faith is not in a religious organization, nor its leaders, but in the Lord Yeshua himself. And there are times when the Lord uses difficulties and even persecution to strengthen the faith of his children and to embolden their resolve to be victorious in living out their life of faith. <clears throat> That's why I think it's so important that the phrase in this verse be translated as to trust in the Lord. Here, once again, we see that we need not fear what the future holds. For Paul reminds us once again that we may entrust our future to the Lord and as we do, he will enable us to face whatever comes in the future with strength and faith and thus the ability to honor him in all things. Indeed, the important emphasis is in the phrase trusting in the Lord. And that's why I wanted to camp on that for a little bit because uh, I think the other uh, idea that uh, where they were uh, believers in the Lord, I think as uh, identifying believers uh, in Paul's circle. Uh, I think rather the, the emphasis is on 
trusting in the Lord. For this is the work of the Ruach in the life of every believer, to recognize that our lives are in his hands and that he will enable us to live for his glory regardless of the challenges we face in this life. The word translated trusting, pepoithotas, which carries the sense to cause to come to a particular point of view or course of action to be convinced or persuaded. Further, Paul writes this uh, word as a perfect participle. Now I know I'm getting into the, into the <laughs> linguistics again, uh, the language, but what is a perfect participle? We noted this earlier. The perfect participle pictures an action that is completed in the past but continues to have an ongoing effect in the future. Sometimes when I've been teaching this uh, to students, I just say, it's as it's, if I were speaking Greek, I would use a perfect participle to say that uh, nearly 48 years ago, I married Paulette. Now, if I cast it in a past tense, then it doesn't bring anything clear about the present. But if I put it in a perfect participle in the Greek, it would mean nearly 48 years ago I married Paulette and I'm still married to her. You see, the perfect participle pictures an action that is completed in the past but continues to have an ongoing effect in the future. Thus, the language emphasizes that a genuine exercise of saving faith in Yeshua takes place at a point in time, but continues to be enlarged and to be strengthened in order to have God's purposes lived out more and more throughout one's life. Here, once again, we see that saving faith is inevitably evidenced by a growth in sanctification. You know, one of the things that really bothers me is that all too often in our modern world, especially in, in Christian churches, uh, the idea that well, you make a decision to receive Jesus as your Savior, and you're in. Okay, well, in some ways that's true. But on the other hand, there is a change. And that change is evidenced by a, a coming away from that which is sinful and moving more and more towards that which pleases the Lord. That's what we call sanctification. And sanctification and justification are inevitably wedded together. Saving faith and ongoing sanctification. And that's what Paul is talking about here. For what God has begun, he always completes. Therefore, all who have been granted faith to believe will persevere in that faith in becoming more and more conformed to the very image of Yeshua or Messiah. Now, we cannot put a progress <laughs> a map out and say you have to do it you know, this much, this much. No. It may be sometimes steps forward and numbers of steps back and so forth and so on. There may be those that progress more quickly in their faith and others that under circumstances for whatever reason do not. That's up to God. But there is to be a progress. If there's no change in a person's life when they have come to confess that Yeshua is the Messiah, if over a longer period of time there's no change in their life, they continue in their same sinful habits and ways as they had before. Or they've made no progress towards a life of genuine faith and sanctification and holiness unto God. Then there's a question mark. Has there really been a new life that has begun? So there's the phrase, Persevere we must, and persevere we will. They have far more courage, Paul says. It was even in the face of persecution that the believers in Yeshua were strengthened in their faith and resolved to live out their faith. The words Paul uses here indicate that God had surely strengthened their faith beyond what one would normally consider given the difficulties they faced. The phrase, having far more courage, translates just two words in the Greek, Peristoteros and Tolman. Peristoteros depicts an abundance, or to a much greater degree, or far more, if we look in the Greek lexicon. While Tolman 
uh, the word that's used here, is an infinitive, meaning to show boldness or resolution in the face of danger, opposition, or a problem. So he links these together. There's an abundance of proof in the way that they are dealing with the persecution they're receiving as believers. The believers whom Paul describes are therefore a valid picture of what God will do when his children face such persecution and troubling times. You know, and I won't say that we're in a very, very troubling time, but this is a difficult time in our own nation and pretty much in the world uh, as we are... uh, we have faced this pandemic, uh, a disease that can come and bring death and so forth, and it's very widespread. But should we not in these times, does not God use this within our lives to seek more, to be faithful to Him, to rely more upon Him, to appreciate even more what He has done and is doing and promised to do for us? So as we seek his face and claim his promises, we will be strengthened and enabled to face whatever difficulties confront us and do so with the power and courage he provides. You see, faith lays hold of what has yet to be experienced because God has promised us. Faith lays hold of God's promises. If God has said it, he will do it. And has he not told us in his word? There's nothing that has come upon man but that it's common. But God is faithful who will not allow us to be tested more than we are able but will with the testing always make a way of escape so that we may be able to bear up under it. Do we believe that? Then we don't need to fear the future. It doesn't mean the future will just be all this bed of roses and everything will be fine. No. But it means that when we come into difficult times, when we face things we thought we could never, ever go through, He will give us the strength. He will give us the ability as we look to Him and trust in Him. And that faith that we have now causes us not to fear what comes, but to give God the glory for all that he is and all that he has promised to do. For even though we do not know what the future holds, we do know who holds the future. He says to speak the word of God without fear. To speak the word obviously means to openly give testimony and witness of one's faith, to proclaim the gospel in all of its glory as we walk in this world. This may be simply to plant the seeds of the gospel to those we may meet only in passing, or to continue to speak and live out the gospel to those with whom we have regular contact. It's always, you know, uh, an interesting thing to try to, when you're meeting somebody, maybe the first time, maybe you're standing in line, maybe you're, uh, whatever it may be, uh, waiting at a ticket booth or something, and, you know, and or maybe you sit down next to somebody, you know, on uh, public transit or maybe at a concert or maybe at a sporting event or something and you have seats next to someone you've not ever met before and you, you, know, you can strike up a little conversation. Uh, some would say, well, how do you start a conversation about the gospel in a situation like that? Well, there's numbers of different ways and everyone probably has their own kind of way to do this, but uh, I find it's kind of interesting after you get past the, the first few uh, introductions and so forth, if you have time to just... Ask a person, oh, do you, you know, do you live in the area here? And if they say, well, yes, I do, or even if they don't, uh, one of the things that I like to say is, oh, um, would you go to church anywhere? And that can open up a whole conversation. So, you know, maybe you can find your own ways to introduce the subject and then be ready with, with the essence of the gospel who Yeshua is, what God has done. Now, you may be talking to someone who says, oh, I don't believe in God. Oh, really? Then you can have the further conversation. Why? Maybe there are some things you can bring up that will cause them to consider again, maybe not when they're with you, but later on it might come back, and if the Lord is drawing them, he might use those kind of conversations to have that person think more and search out more about what it means to genuinely have 
faith in God. Some of the popular English Bibles simply have the the word, that is, rather than the word of God. And I've given you in your notes there some of those uh, that are different. Um, some of them just have the word rather than the word of God. The reason why some have the word rather than the word of God is because some manuscripts do not include the word God. However, though there may be some textual critical arguments that seek to show the original to not have had the words of God, there is significant weight with the manuscripts which do include these words. So, if you understand what I'm saying, I mean, when you... We have numbers of manuscripts of Philippians, for instance, and there are some of the manuscripts that have of God in the manuscript, the word of God, and others just have the word. And so, there's a whole science of how do we figure out which manuscripts have the best uh, history and so forth and so on, and I won't bore you with that. But um, my uh, appraisal is that there is significant weight with the manuscripts which do include these words. And so I believe that uh, Paul wrote the word of God, even though the United Bible Society Committee decided that of God was secondary. The textual evidence seems strong enough to indicate um, it to be what Paul wrote. And uh, Bruce Metzger, who is now with the Lord, but major, major uh, scholar in this area, he writes, It must be acknowledged that on the weight and variety of external evidence, the reading the word to speak the word of God seems to be preferable. And I've given you, those of you that are interested in it, and maybe have some Greek, I've given you some in the footnote there of the uh, of the different manuscripts that have of God. And the major early manuscripts do. The reason I think it is important to make this point, in other words, why would I take the time to go over something as minute as this, uh, is because even though the simple the word in this context would clearly be referring to the proclamation of the gospel, the added the word of God reminds us that the gospel message we are privileged to proclaim must always be that which conforms to the scriptures themselves. In our times, and indeed throughout history, the genuine message of the good news, the gospel of God's way of saving sinners, and bringing them to have eternal fellowship with him, has often been distorted and changed to fit someone's own perspective and desires. When Paul proclaimed in his epistle to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he is referring to the very gospel that was revealed to mankind from the beginning, and seen to be fully invested in the saving work Yeshua accomplishes in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession. We know that the gospel was revealed from the beginning, right? For Paul states, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. How could all the nations be blessed in Abraham? And how is this to be the gospel? Well, because Abraham understood that it meant that there was one coming from his line who would make salvation a reality. And that one, of course, is Yeshua. We likewise see that the saving work of Yeshua was made known even to Adam and Chava. For God himself proclaims to Satan, the enemy, Then I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now, who is her seed? Well, it's one who would come in the flesh. It's one who would take on humanity. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is often called the Proto-Evangelium. It means the, the earliest form of the gospel. Why? Because the he is referring to Yeshua. He shall bruise you on the head. That's <laughs> when you step on the head of a snake, it's over but you shall bruise him on the heel in the process. In other words, our own Savior Yeshua, the Eternal One, the Creator, lowered himself, took upon himself flesh, as we will read in this wonderful hymn in, in this epistle. Uh, and uh, he experienced death. The Almighty, All-Eternal God experienced 
death as a human so that he would pay the price for our sin. And that was hinted at and then finally worked out in the rest of Scripture. It was hinted at as, as early as Genesis 3.15. Now I know there are those who think, well, well, I don't know about that. But in the context and as you continue to read the Tanakh, uh, it's quite evident. How could all nations be blessed in the seed of Abraham? It means the incarnate one, the one who would come by way of, of his family. And all nations would be blessed. How is that possible? Through the gospel. The gospel going to all nations. Thus, we see two important applications for our lives from this text. First, is that we should be strengthened to be people who proclaim the gospel at every opportunity we have, whether it is to those whom we see regularly, or even by planting seeds of the good news to those we may meet in passing, as God opens the way to do so. Second, we should be careful to test our understanding of the gospel message against the scriptures, and always thereby to be able to give the gospel message and truth as God intends. For it is the gospel message of the scriptures that is used of the Lord to bring his chosen ones to himself, forgiving their sin and granting them abundant life here and eternity with him. Let us, therefore, put to work the courage and strength that God provides in order to speak the word of God without fear. Now, in the next verse, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Messiah even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Well, how can they preach the gospel from envy and strife or preaching Messiah? That is, preaching the true gospel in Messiah from envy? Well, in order to properly understand Paul's point in this and the following verses, we must have well in mind what he states in verse 18. So I'm skipping ahead at, towards the end of this uh, particular unit. For there he says that even if the motives for preaching Messiah are wrong, if in fact the truth regarding Messiah is proclaimed, then the outcome remains in the hands of God. This helps us to understand that in this and the following verses he is describing the motives of those who are preaching Messiah, not the content of the message. For surely, if those who are described in our present text are giving a false gospel, then it would have been impossible for Paul to say in verse 18 that he rejoices in their message and proclamations even if they do it with the, with the wrong motivation. So they were proclaiming that Yeshua was indeed the Messiah and that salvation was only through him. But some did it out of spite, and others did it out of love. Note first that Paul indicates that those he mentions in our verse were, in fact, preaching Messiah, but they were do so from envy and strife. It seems very probable that there were those who felt Paul had no right to have such a prominent position as an apostle in the believing community, given his former hatred of those who believed in Yeshua, well, his own testimony gives us the picture. We read of this in Acts 26. He says, Paul says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Yeshua of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. These are his own words. This is what Paul was before he came to faith in the Messiah. Now, do you suppose if there was someone in your location that was doing everything he could to make life miserable for believers, and then suddenly... He came to faith in the Messiah, but not only did he come, become a believer in Messiah, suddenly he became a prime teacher who went all over the world <laughs> teaching the message of truth. But he was the very one who did whatever he could to make your life miserable, and maybe he did. Can you kind of put yourself in those shoes, so to speak? Do you suppose there were many believers who just wondered how in the world anyone could support someone like Paul. 
Consider the possibility that there were those who had family members who were imprisoned and possibly even executed on account of the work and false testimonies of Paul. What if one had a sister, a brother, a mother, a father, who had been executed, and Paul gave his thumbs up to do so? Do you suppose that it would be very difficult to forgive him? Even though one should. But could one actually accept him as a teacher and a leader and one who should be supported? One could surely imagine that there were those who thought prison was the perfect place for Paul and were striving to put themselves in the place of authority and leadership that was now vacated with Paul in prison. In other words, okay, Paul's in prison now. Finally, we got him out of our hair. Now we can do our thing. This could well picture people doing their best to gain a following of believers by proclaiming the truth about Messiah, but doing so in order to displace Paul from his position as one of Yeshua's apostles and thus stripping him of the authority that came with his apostolic appointment. Thus, we should most likely understand the envy and strife of our verse as that which motivated those who wished to diminish Paul's authority. On the other hand, those who were declaring the truth about Yeshua as the true Messiah out of goodwill, were those who believed the truth about Paul that the Messiah himself had appeared to him and had commissioned him to be one of his apostles. What is more, these were happy to see themselves sharing in Paul's ministry and even helping him as co-laborers. Do you suppose that there were those who, when Paul told them about his experience on the road to Damascus and he was met by the, the uh, Savior himself and knocked off of his ride and so forth and so on and then told to go back into the city and so forth and so on. Do you suppose when he told that that story that what happened to him later on, do you suppose there were others who said, oh yeah, right. Anybody can make that story up. I think there might well have been. But perhaps these were still people who wanted others to believe in Yeshua. But they were doing what they were doing in order to, to, to hope that Paul would never regain his position as an apostle amongst the believing communities. He says the latter do it out of love. In other words, those who don't do it out of strife. Knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Messiah out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Here we see that what motivated those who proclaimed the truth of the gospel in Yeshua out of goodwill toward Paul did so because they fully believed the truth about Yeshua's Damascus Road appearance to Paul and thus recognized him as one who was appointed by Yeshua himself. His appointment to be an apostle, that is, one sent out, was by Yeshua himself. And thus to refuse to accept that appointment is to undermine the very work to which Paul was duly appointed. In other words, if Yeshua appointed Paul to do this, and you decided you didn't want anything to do with Paul, who are you really thumbing your nose at? Who are you really turning your back on? Yeshua. You say, well, how could they give the gospel if they were doing that? Well, maybe they didn't see it quite that way. Maybe they didn't understand it that way. Again, there may have been emotions, especially if family members were uh, or deeply hurt or even put to death by this one who now was claimed to be an apostle of Yeshua. Well, Paul speaks of being appointed for the defense of the gospel. You know, let me stop and just say, if we try to put ourselves in that position, what does it require us to do? It requires us first to believe that what God does is right. It requires us, secondly, to know how to forgive and truly to forgive. If Paul was forgiven by Yeshua, then who are we to hold something against him? Now you say, well, that, that's obvious to him. Okay, but what about when in our own lives, when someone has really hurt us? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's in our growing up years. And we hold these things and we can't seem to get rid of them. We have to bring this to the Lord 
and beg Him to help us with strength to genuinely forgive even as we have been forgiven. Isn't that what we're taught in the Scriptures? Yes, of course. The Greek word translated appointed as kemai and carries the sense of be appointed, set, or destined unto. Surely God had gifted Paul and endowed him with power to be a witness of the power of the gospel for only the miraculous power of Yeshua himself could have changed such a person as Paul into a man who was willing to give his life for the truth of Yeshua and his divine work in saving sinners. He says the former proclaim Messiah out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Here Paul tells us clearly that even though those who wish to cause grief to Paul still proclaim the truth about Yeshua, that he was the promised Messiah, and that it was through his work that salvation is secured for those who believe in him. So he's telling us that they were still giving the gospel, but they were doing it with wrong motives. And they did this even though the motives were fueled by selfishness. It seems clear that they hoped to gain a following of disciples, and by doing so, to diminish Paul's influence, and perhaps even the support that was being given to him, even while in prison. Here's an important point we may learn from this. It is the truth of the message that, God's u- that God uses to turn the wayward heart to himself, and to grant the one who repents and believes full forgiveness and eternal life. Even wrong motives cannot undo that power of the gospel if, in fact, the gospel which is proclaimed is in agreement with the scriptures themselves. What is so very damaging, however, is when the gospel as centered in Yeshua is edited by man's own designs and desires, and by a false gospel many are led astray all the while believing that they have earned God's favor. And frankly, I think this so-called prosperity gospel is exactly that. It's not the gospel at all. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't contain seeds of the gospel, and there may be some who hear it, and God turns them and, and shows them the truth. But the idea that if you come forward and, and raise your hand or come forward and give your life to Jesus, that you will, you will from that time on have nothing but prosperity and wealth and everything will go well and, and so forth and so on, uh, is just not the gospel. It leaves out one of the most important aspects and components of the gospel, and that is repentance, genuine repentance. None of us deserve God's grace. God's grace is not earned. God's grace is given freely. And Paul goes on to say, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment, even in the time of the first century, there were those who sought to use religion for their own purposes and to gain their own following. Clearly, Paul did not preach Yeshua in this way, for he was himself forsaken by many who previously applauded his stand against Yeshua and those who were his followers. But we know that those who sought to diminish Paul's influence and to exploit his imprisonment for their own purposes were doing so out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. Now, after thousands of years, there are those who not only despise the true teaching of the Scriptures, but have fabricated a false gospel, and by doing so have led countless numbers astray. I think of some of the cults, you know, Mormonism and some of the others that have tried to take the gospel and twist it and so forth and so on, which they have. And many, many, many have followed their errant teaching. Yet even in spite of this, God's sovereign plan has not and cannot be thwarted. We therefore ought to be greatly encouraged to share the true message of the gospel to people everywhere. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Messiah is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. You know, when I stop to think about those things which uh, I wrestle with, and then I look at Paul, and I think, oh boy, He's in prison for his faith. And he's awaiting uh, some kind of a judgment in the court as to whether he will live or, or be executed. And yet he can write this. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. He, in other words, he, he cares not what the motives are of those people who are co- trying to cause him harm, but only if, the, if Messiah is proclaimed. And he said, in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Isn't that a wonderful message for us? Isn't that something we ought to lay hold of and say, Lord, I want that. I don't want to fear tomorrow. 
I don't want to fear what's coming in the future. I don't need to know that because it wouldn't help me at any rate. What I need to do is recognize that the future is in the hands of my Savior. And what He will do will be right and will be good even if it causes me some struggle. It will be for His glory and for my good. Paul now expresses his own affirmation to trust in God's all-encompassing power and promises. Instead of harboring ill feelings against those who are seeking to undermine his authority and position as an apostle of Yeshua, he commits himself to rejoicing. This is a genuine display of faith, for the whole reality of eternal salvation is, in every aspect, the work of God, and he will have none he has chosen to be lost. But what is the very basis of Paul's joy? That Messiah is proclaimed, that is, that Yeshua is proclaimed to be the true, eternal, promised Messiah of the Tanakh, and that he has proven this conclusively by his resurrection from the grave. In other words, Paul rejoices that he has the ability, the opportunity to give glory to Yeshua, to glorify the one who has given himself for us all. So here we have an excellent example of how all who are in any position of leadership ought to feel toward those who may seek to undermine their work or to diminish their effectiveness. If we are truly depending upon the Lord, then we are able to rejoice even when others may seek to diminish our effectiveness. We must set our focus upon the very thing Paul emphasizes. The Messiah is proclaimed, that is, he is made known in truth as the scriptures tell us. Okay, so once again we come back to the scriptures, right? We come back to the uh, the very foundation of the Word of God and then seeking to live that out and to speak to others to show them the way of life. Thank you for coming and sharing this time with us. I hope that the uh, things we've looked over here in these few verses have been of help and encouragement and even exhortation. And we'll look forward to being with you again next week as we continue our study in this epistle of Philippians.